Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Meek City Drive-In Podcast Network. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. I'm Jerison. Our new guest, who is one of our longtime listeners, and we're here to talk about movies that we watch this week and not rate them. Jerison, before we get into this, I am really excited to have someone who has actually really listened to this and could give us an assessment of the value of this as entertainment for people. Um, I just kind of want to know what you think of the show. I think it's crap. It has no value. Um, I don't even know why I continue to listen. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here. Remember, we're a branch of the Music City Driving Podcast Network, and if you want to listen to us, uh, you shouldn't. So the uh, the real point, what we want to do today, we're uh, talking about the movies that we watched and not rating them. So, Curtis, what did you watch this week? Um, mostly the Harry Potter franchise from beginning to end. All of them, and that's because you upgraded your equipment. I got the, uh, uh, I upgraded my equipment, but I, I watched the first three before the full upgrade happened. But yeah, okay, because this is the thing: is I uh, did reviews on each one of them mm-hmm. back from July, but I don't have any sort of HD audio delivery device. But you got a sound bar. Yeah, it doesn't have Dolby Atmos, but it does have like Dolby True. Uh, True sound or something like that. So this will supplement reviews on the Music City Drive-In by talking about the 4K upgrade for sound, yeah. which I was never really able to speak to. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's cool. Jerison, what'd you watch this week? Uh, I watched Ninja Turtles, and I watched it on my phone. I I David Lynch would hate you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, I, I would hate that too, but you know, in a pinch when you gotta do it. No, I watched it on a TV, but yeah. Ninja Turtles? Yeah. So that's the one you're gonna do the gauntlet for? Yes. Okay. 1990. And I think we've all seen Spider-Man No Way Home? Yes. Yep. It's interesting. This, the, there's something... Well, everything we're talking about today, uh, all these films we like because of things that we bring to them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, they're formative franchises. They're things that like we... It's really hard to be objective about no. them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Especially Spider-Man. So I think you're going to have a lot of fun. So. Yeah. I think it's smart to start with, uh, with Harry Potter. So with Harry Potter and I I'm now, not, are you picking a movie or is this it's Harry a, Potter? This is like Harry Potter. I'm like I'm, I'm gonna hit some major, like some big big points, but like there are specific things in like specific movies that I do want to talk about though. Like um, I, I started noticing it in, in Goblet of Fire. As far as the sound goes, is that every now and then, and I don't know if I, I've set up the soundbar wrong or if it's inherent to the the upgraded sound quality, but there are times where the sound would dip and and the volume and words spoken would be a bit more muted and be harder to hear. When Fred and George were talking to Hermione about the Bulgarian Seeker is when I first noticed it. I watched them recently with my son. We read through the books and then we watched the movies. I noticed that on the Blu-ray release also. Yeah, yeah. they've so. they've been the. Uh, I I give you a ex- specific example from Goblet of Fire. One of the most like recognizable examples mm-hmm. is when Harry first sees the dark mark and his scar starts burning. He goes, "What is that?" And the mm-hmm. ADR is all real muted because they put this loud like noise showing yeah. you the dark mark over top of yeah. it. So yeah, from from Goblet of Fire on, I started noticing that. It, I didn't hear it as much in in the Deathly Hollow movies. It was pretty consistent with that one, mm-hmm. but. Uh, the most visually striking thing in the entire movie was, was how mostly with the uh, Haplet Prince and how they took all the green out of that. And there were multiple there, there, there were multiple scenes, not just the cave scene, that were like almost completely black and white. Well, okay, so here's here's things I learned about 4K while I was trying to, to do this thing. So a lot of movies that get upgraded to 4K. Uh, when they're in, when they were Blu-rays, people used to remaster them uh, with color grading. So. 
movies have like a distinct tone or color or things like that put to them. And the Harry Potter movies did this. The Order of Phoenix has blue all over it. Uh, Half-Blood Prince had a, a green-brown tint. Mm-hmm. And uh, Deathly Hallows was mostly gray. And then Deathly Hallows Part 2 has a lot of nighttime scenes or a lot of browns and earth tones and things like that. And then yeah. fire that comes out. But when 4K upgrades happen, a lot of times in order to make HDR work, what they've been doing is they've been sort of peeling off or they go back to an original print of the movie or something that doesn't have that color grading mm-hmm. and upgrade from there. So it's missing. Yeah. So what you get in Half-Blood Prince is the color grading that was used to keep the whole thing looking totally consistent is peeled back and the sepia tones and things like that come forward. But also something you have to watch out for, if you haven't paid careful attention to your TV's settings, Mm -hmm. a lot of movies become muted gray because your TV is not on a setting that will show you the full range of colors like ensuring that HDR is active and that you have the right cable transmitting the right mm. information consistently. Oh, yeah. Because there's an extra pixel kind of thing. Yeah. There's an extra like any any time your TV doesn't recognize the information that's in that cell, mm. it leaves it gray. The the easy way to avoid all these problems is just watch it on your phone. <laughs> To think that that you've watched a movie on your fucking phone. Let's get real. <laughs> he had a cinematic experience. Yep. We, we love you, David Lynch. We talked about Eraserhead once, so we love David Lynch. We have I, that card, right? I, I, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen multiple David Lynch movies at this point. Yeah, and Curtis, I, I, Curtis has seen multiple ones. I, I, I watched I, Dune. You're a brave man. <laughs> I'm going to buzz you. Um, <laughs> so the real question is, was it good? Uh, well, I, well, I'm I'm not, not in the, the gauntlet, gauntlet so <laughs> I mean, I, I generally like the Harry Potter movies, but like uh, going through them all, like back to back, they all work really well as like standalone movies. But then when you get to Deathly Hallows parts one and two, specifically part two, you start getting lines and bits of information that don't happen in the movies that only occur in the books. For example, like when the glass shard. One is one is the glass shard. Another one would be. Uh, when Harry's going into the room of, of requirement to get uh, Ravenclaw's diadem, and you you have Ron and Hermione seeing Harry on the Marauders map, and then he vanishes, and then Ron says, "Oh, well, he might be in in the room of requirements." You said that last year, and Hermione goes, "Yeah, I did," and I'm like, "Well, yeah, in the book." Mm, yeah, but he just told you the information you need to know. You mentioned it last year. That's. Uh, I, I think it's really up to like, and that was the hard thing is really wanting to review them as movies, yeah, and not adaptations of something in order to talk about like how they work as movies and upgrades in 4K. Because the biggest one, arguably, when you're talking about what you're talking about, is Half Blood Prince. Yeah, I mean, this is the movie where they added things that were not in the book. They, it started with Half Blood Prince, and and a lot of people are really pissed off at that movie, but it's my favorite. And, yeah. you know, buzz on me. But, you know, <laughs> it, that to me, the it's in service of tone and it's in service of storytelling. And I think that movie stands so well as just a retrospective goodbye to childhood mm. that it's I just love it. I love that movie mm. so much. I'm so yeah. glad I'm not the gauntlet for this. Half-Blood <laughs> Prince is. Oh, yeah. No, my, my favorite is. is yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, if we're going to go through favorites, mine is. is is uh, the is Prisoner the Prisoner of Azkaban? Uh, um, it's so many people's I, favorite. I'm sorry. Mo- it, like like 
at first it was the movie I, I liked the least because it differed so vastly from from the book in so many ways. But the more I listened to Lupin and, and him talking to, to, to Harry and I, I liked his cadence of, of, of speech mm-hmm. uh, all, all the way to, to Harry learning the, the Patronus charm for the first time. And, and, oh, you, and you get to hear scene. you get to hear what his happy moment is for the movies. And it's literally him talking to his parent. John Williams' score in The Prisoner of Azkaban yeah. is insane because... It's like John Williams knows how to make a movie where he's supposed to tell you what you're feeling the whole way through, like the first two Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Then Alfonso Cuaron came and made an art movie. And he's like, how How do I do this? So there's like, there's themes with Buckbeak. Mm-hmm. There's that haunting little underscored theme where he's talking about his happy memory. Mm-hmm. And then there's the big finale theme. And the rest of it is like, I have to score whatever ever will serve the moment. Mm-hmm. And then randomly there's like, there's a little flute theme so that you can follow a butterfly that's just flying across the castle to show the change of time. Mm. Like, it's so not John Williams' wheelhouse. Yeah. It's, but he does such a good job. You could say it was magical. Shut the fuck up! So, no, but but then, but then... As I got older, I started looking at, at the filmmaking aspect and how the camera moves around each scene and, and what and, and what that could possibly convey. And then you got the changing of the seasons being introduced, like uh, spring is shown by the Whomping Willow shaking off snow. Mm-hmm. And it's like these little details that I can appreciate as as a filmmaker. Yeah. But the thing is, Goblet of Fire, to me, is, is the one I, th- I was going to say real quick. Goblet of Fire deliberately can't stand its own. It's the Empire Strikes Back between two trilogies. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, if you don't already know who Voldemort is going into this, like, and what Harry's relationship with him is, mm-hmm. none of what you're watching is going to make any sense. Yep. But, anyways. Starting from Prisoner of Azkaban going forward, because the books and, and the movies are, are so dialogue heavy and they're trying to keep these down to below two and a half hours, a lot of the, the dialogue is, like, really paced, uh, it, it's spoken fast. You're kind of expected to hear it and understand it instantly. Yeah. And that can get jarring at times and but you also yeah you know the difference that started with prisoner of azkaban and ends right before deathly hallows part one uh jk rowling and steve cloves i think is the screenwriter Mm -hmm. uh decided Mm -hmm. to start adapting only harry's story okay that's why spew's not in there spw hermione's you know you've read the books more recently jared since you have a better yeah i'm gonna strongly disagree i think starting with uh Number four, they rely too much on you bringing knowledge into it. I feel like... Uh, oh, no, I'm saying you would have the more recent memory of seeing what's missing in the movie. Oh, th- there's a the lot books. missing. Yeah. But I feel like uh, somebody who has read the books is going to enjoy uh, the movies four, five, six, seven, and 8 a lot more because they already have the missing information filled in for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, for sure. There's literally, in Sorcerer's Stone, I think one scene missing from the book. And they technically cover it. It's just that Draco Malfoy challenges Harry to a duel, challenges him to meet him on the third cor- corridor, and that's when Filch shows up, and that's why they end up at Fluffy. Or and it, yeah. a dead cave troll as one of the rooms in mm-hmm. the end. Yep. And a potions riddle right. that Hermione figures well, out. That's not necessary. But well, that's what I'm saying is literally in the first movie, I can count on one hand the number of scenes that are not there. Right. And all of them, you can justifiably understand why they're right. not there. Right. The first movie is a good adaptation. You know, yeah. everything uh, leads no. to the next thing and no, it's like, well paced. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's directed by, by, a, by Christopher Columbus, uh, uses 
a whole lot of practical effects. Uh, like the, 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 the entrance when you first get to the Great Hall and you see all the candles floating, all those are all real candles strung up by fish linings that they were going to digitally remove at first. One by one. And then they looked at the film and said, hey, you can't really see the fish linings. We're just going to leave it as is. <laughs> nice. And you'd think by 4K you could see them, but you can't. You still can't. Fish line. If you ever want to make yeah. something in a movie, just make sure it's like <laughs> 20 feet away from your camera. It'll look like they're flying. So just, if you need your friend to fly, wrap some fish yeah. line around his neck and a couple of his wrists and ankles. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing with... Put him around a tree. <laughs> yeah, and... Well, I, I think it's good uh, what Jerison brought up is, is what do you bring to Harry Potter that makes it work for you when you're watching it? Yeah, what's your history with the franchise? I've been reading them since before I knew before I knew the movies were a thing. So I started. I, I actually started with The Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, got maybe a chapter in and thought, I am missing a lot of stuff. I'm going to go back to the Sorcerer's Stone. And then I read from Sorcerer's Stone onwards. Mm -hmm. I, read, I learned them when Goblet of Fire came out. And so I read all of Goblet of Fire. <laughs> and then I read most of Prisoner of Azkaban and Weird Chapters. It's my favorite book. And I think that's maybe why it's so jarring for me and hard for me to, to grasp as an mm. adaptation. But um, uh, mine's more patchy. You know, I read, I was reading them about the time... Order of the Phoenix, the book came out. Mm -hmm. And so I read the first four and then that one after it was released and then I just fell off of it. And my senior yeah. year of college, I read all seven, then watched all the movies. And after reading them, I'm like, well, I, I got done with that. And then after watching them, I'm like, well, that sucked. And, then, <laughs> and that was... Uh, Buzz. What sucked about it? And that was 10 years ago. And then uh, I reread them with my son over the past few years and watched them. And You, you know, see it through I, his lens. Well, also, not just seeing his excitement with it, but uh, every other word we would stop and have a discussion about the lore and the mythology of the world and the social context of what was going uh, on. And just uh, diving into it with my wife and my son brought a lot more to it. Yeah. I think the biggest significance between that experience of it and my experience earlier, both uh, when I read them the first time and when I read them in college, uh, I had somebody to share it with this last time. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, that I makes think a difference. A friend of ours brought up a really good point that a lot of the writing, the storytelling of Harry Potter is a lot of deus ex machina. I mean, even Harry points out in the Order of the Phoenix movie and in the book, and I really like when he does this, is that when you're handling traumatic situations and things like that, a lot of what you do is just instinct and luck, and things happen as they come. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, him having a lot of help all the time that just comes out and helps save him so that things happen. Like, there's there's a lot of that if you just take them as standalone stories, but what they mean to the people who watch them and the enjoyability of the world and visiting the world, it's, like, always been the staple of that franchise. And that's life. You have people helping you around every turn if you're lucky. Mm. And uh, most of us can't get through life without the help of other people. So what what would bring you back to watch through them again? The world. The world is just so so much fun to, to, to dive into and, and to just experience that I, I, I don't see it ever getting old for me. So Sp Spider-Man No Way Home, it, it was certainly something. I have problems with the editing, direction, performances, justification of the characters being in the movie. I have problems with the uh, production design. I have problems with, uh, I mean, like, I'm trying to weed out everyone who's going to go ahead and click off of this. But I think most people are, I'm trying to push to the point of hate listening. Everyone <laughs> comes back because they have to know. 
I think that uh, Willem Dafoe, even though he put his all into it, is overrated when it comes to this movie. I think that Aunt May's death was cheap. I think that uh, even though they introduced my favorite character of all time, Daredevil, he was used as a plot device to make things less complicated so that they could just tell the Spider-Man coming in story all they want. Why don't you tell us what you really feel? I love this movie. What about you guys? I'm not going to lie. I didn't have that many issues with it, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, I, I, I understand all the points that that you're making and and uh but i like, like well, i haven't made them yet well well no like like <laughs> i mean i mean fair i didn't i didn't see really any directing issues i think the main problem that i had with this movie was the ant may death scene and and hearing the with great power comes great responsibility line mostly yeah, well, because sorry, it, the line with great power comes a great responsibility it doesn't she's got to make it her own it's cool because toby mcguire says it like five minutes I, later i so, know but yeah. whatever my 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 biggest issue is is and and and, and my brother just dis- disagrees with me with on on this completely. But I don't think the line needs to be there. I thought that was already evident back in Civil War when when Tony Stark is meeting Spider Man for the first time and he says essentially that in longer words. Well, and I was a, a huge people. It's worth talking about the legacy of Spider Man movies in this one because. Yeah. I'd actually say everyone reacted really negatively in The Amazing Spider-Man when they tried to take the same line and they didn't just say it. They made it more convoluted. Yeah. And then they technically did that again. And I know you like that way that he delivers that. And that, to me, is my central core real issue with this movie Mm -hmm. is Spider-Man starts in a place of knowing, like, I can't not be Spider-Man because... Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And this movie ends with him being, oh man, it really does come with great responsibility. Yeah. And that's the whole point of a six movie arc. Right. Now, I, I don't mind Aunt May being the, the, the Uncle Ben for this Spider-Man. Uh, with, I, I, again, if, if those, I, I would have been completely fine with that scene if those lines had not been said because it, it still holds the same weight, I think. Because I haven't said it yet. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have any problems like you do although here's the real problem with the movie <laughs> spider-man is like well, shit man everybody knows i'm spider-man i'm gonna go see dr strange and magic this out of the world and Ma- and dr strange is like yep let's do this without being like all right peter here are the rules you can't interrupt me while i'm doing the spell we have to establish all the ground lines first he this this movie could have been avoided if dr strange, if had, doctor asked strange questions. had written on a sticky notes the rules for his magic spell. And you know what? You know what? Here's the thing. I talk to Curtis about this in writing sometimes. About uh, how all horror movies need to have the excuse in order to make their cell phones don't work. Yeah. The characters, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder how many people would even have recognized any kind of problem with that if Doctor Strange didn't point out that it was stupid right after he did it. This is clearly, fundamentally... The opposite of what people say you should do to write a story. Mm-hmm. It just happened to work really well. The whole idea was, how do we justify getting all three Spider-Men together? Right. And they wrote backwards from there. Doctor yeah. Strange is our character that's going to get him in. So Peter would have to get in there. Peter's identity is out. He uses Doctor Strange to get him there. And they stopped writing there. I was talking to Curtis. Like You could have Matt Murdock in the movie be his lawyer and introduce him that way but why does that have to take away all of the consequence of people knowing his identity apart from someone throwing green paint on him if if it was peter trapped in prison because he has been spider-man and aunt may also trapped in prison because she has been you know endorsing him as spider-man or you know not prison whatever kid jail Ah. he's 17 you could actually 
have some sort of kind of justification, more desperation. Like, I can't do this, I can't do this. It's not Peter sees that their lives are upset because they can't get into college. It's Peter sees that their lives are upset because they're freaking in jail. Yeah. You introduced Daredevil in order to sweep away consequences so that they were free to make things work the way they want them to work. And there are so many little problems with choices and stuff like that I have. Like, Norman Osborn's Green Goblin, right? Yeah. There's this arc that happens on paper and in the background that we never actually see. Tobey Maguire reverses Norman Osborn being impaled by his own glider. He stops that specific action from happening. That's not what happens on screen. What happens is he stops Tom Holland in that beat from succumbing to rage. Right. They do not address at all the idea that 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 Peter Parker saved that Norman Osborn. They don't look at each other. They don't talk to each other. In fact, Norman Osborn below screen stabs him <laughs> with apparently an invisible knife that causes an invisible wound. And then it looks like Tobey Maguire is going to die and then he doesn't. So it didn't matter. That's how no, that gets concluded. Yeah, that, right. Th- this, this really neat idea definitely totally happened in the movie, but absolutely wasn't directed in order to have that be any of the focus. Yeah. And that's part of my issue. Aunt May, her death, mm-hmm. when she got smacked by that glider, I was like, Aunt May's dying in this movie. I, I thought I heard that. Yep, this is how it happens. Yeah. And then she gets up and she's fine, and she actually played fine so believably. I was like, oh, are they trying to subvert how and who we think is, is going to happen to, well, no, she's collapsing. Okay, she's collapsing. In retrospect, when I'm watching that scene, I'm not going to be thinking, oh, tragic, this is how she dies. I'm so, I don't want it to come. Oh, yeah, she's fine. No, I'm going to be thinking, this is weird. She's fine. No, she's not fine. Like, I, it's, it's, yeah. it's disjointed. Like, they, they do a lot of practical, they took advantage of the fact that Willem Dafoe was willing to do his own stunts. Mm-hmm. And they threw those actors around hallways and busted them through floors. And the camera is not still for a second. All that being said, I, I did really enjoy seeing, seeing, Andrew Garfield and, and, and Tobey Maguire back back in in, in their suits again. I, I liked how how they interacted with uh, Tom Holland and like all that. I their, think was directed really well. Their function was perfect. Yeah, and it was written in so well. Yeah. Their their function of everyone Spider Man as a character in every iteration has these moments where he's pushed beyond what's reasonable for a human being to cope with. Mm-hmm. And to have other Spider Man who have been through that be the support system that comes in that is. Perfect. Yes, I uh, loved that. I want to see then, the Spider-Man. Movie. And then, dude, but like, like outside of that, just like their little interactions, like, like when 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 Tobey Maguire reveals he doesn't need web web cures, and then Andrew <laughs> Garfield's like, "How does that work?" People have been waiting for that for so long. I'm so glad that they didn't do the thing where they're like, "No, people are predicting this," and then dip the uh, other way. Yeah, like there's I, that. And then, then you have the, the 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 scene when when they're at the Statue of Liberty and and they're talking about all the villains they face, and they're they're just. Realizing just, like, just despite being the same, how different they actually are. And I also, I love the concept that um, the uniqueness of this Spider-Man is that he lives in a world of superheroes, and they use that. Yes. That Spider-Man has always been someone who has to hold the whole world on his shoulders, mm-hmm. and the unique opportunity they had to hold it together is what makes them win. Mm. That is, that's the thing. The Amazing Spider-Man 2.5 parts of this movie <laughs> is the core of this right. movie to me. That that is that is I I love it and yeah I just, really... just just getting to see Andrew Garfield like save the save MJ mm-hmm. kind of kind of kind of like re- 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 redeeming his his failure and saving Gwen Gwen Stacy and he's the mm. central support system for the other two you know like cracking Tobey Maguire's back in a hilarious callback to that whole issue that they had where Jake Gyllenhaal was almost Spider Man mm-hmm. and just like 
his character having the most reason to have gone off the deep end because they didn't kill Mary Jane in the originals or whatever. Like he, mm. Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire's dark period is when he had eyeliner. That was <laughs> again, like I was like, emo man. I mean, yes, I know he did some more rough stuff in Spider-Man Three. Chill the fuck out, people. In, in, in your, yeah, but um, he was really the core, and they they deliberately wrote his character harder. To have his own story happening in that movie. Yeah. Tobey Maguire shows up and his villains are either passive or don't even have a flying reason in hell to be upset like Sandman. No, yeah, yeah, no, no. Sandman just like flips. He's like, no, I'm fine with this. I'm fine with going back to a normal. Then Goblin has a speech and he's like, peace and leaves. And then he still wants to go back home. But Electro's directly opposed to that as stated in the movie. Sorry to tell tell you, Sandman, no one's going back home. So the group he's with is directly opposed with his personal goals and it doesn't make any and sense. I, I said this in my YouTube review. All it would take is one quick sentence, one quick beat where everyone is busting out the side of the thing mm-hmm. and, and uh, Sandman tells him, hit the box. Because the universe he's going to go back to, he's not going to die. He's going to go try and be with his daughter. Yeah. So Spider-Man refuses to hit the box. Boom, he has a reason to be mad at him. Simple as that. Yeah. So Tobey Maguire is just there and smiling, and it's great to see him. But Andrew Garfield is like he's he's the he, reflection of Tom Holland that makes the whole movie work. Yeah, uh, his 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 whole bantering with 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 uh, with with Max uh, Electro when when they first see each other again, and like, they acknowledge the Donald Glover of it all. But I'm, I'm Spider Man apologizing for not being black. Yeah, no, there's that. Yeah, but like, but also going through. Uh, when Andrew Garfield was going through his his, his dark period, about uh, at, at some point, I, I I I don't know. I just stopped pulling my punches. My first thought was, "That's interesting. I want to see that move. That movie. I want to see that." <laughs> uh, like fun theory here, because this is another part of it. What we bring to it is sometimes our headcanon and our fandom to these movies. Yeah, yeah. I feel like what happened, and this is a way for Sony to put a pause on it if they want to make the Amazing Spider-Man three, mm-hmm. is he possibly killed Rhino. Because uh, having just rewatched Amazing Spider-Man one and two, and oof, that was rough. Um, Rhino is the first person that says yes when Harry Osborn starts to kick off a Sinister Six, and so when he has that machine, it's the first instance of what is supposed to be the Sinister Six coming out. Yeah, the reason they would have stopped would be wait, something's wrong. He killed someone, and so it makes sense if maybe yeah. like yeah, yeah, and then. Uh... I think uh, him facing the Rhino at the end of Amazing Spider-Man Two was more optimistic. I don't see him going. That's that's my thing. It's like <laughs> yeah. fans who like things do work to fill in the gaps for people. Going back a minute, I want to draw another parallel to Amazing Spider-Man Two. After Aunt May dies, uh, Peter fucks off and he goes to be alone and just sit in his depression. That is uh, an interesting parallel to Andrew Garfield just sitting at uh, Gwen Stacy's grave. And you see the different seasons passing at the end of that movie. Right before his dad shows up in a deleted scene. God, I hate that fucking It, it shows that it's, uh, while they're from different worlds, they are still the same Spider-Man. Person. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the thing. Is Yeah, I think that's that's the, the hard part about the Amazing Spider-Man movies and why it's like... But yeah, I, I think... It sucks that they're so dripped in things that are so flawed because the core was so strong. Andrew Garfield was so... Yeah understanding of and impassioned by that character then but uh, i don't know there's just something so overindulgent i feel like if you go back to when the amazing spider-man was going to be a thing mm -hmm. and we're like we already care about 
Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. Just make a better one of those. Uh To Hollywood stuffing more and more of it down your throat until you're like, I can't believe the greatest thing to ever happen in the MCU is three Spider-Men came together that are the same person. Yeah. Like... People, like, that my, my whole issue, my whole confusion with this movie is everyone's saying this is the greatest thing ever when it, it flies in the face of every everything everyone ever said they wanted. It reestablishes Spider-Man's origin, which people said that was the great thing about the Spider-Man is they never did that. It stuffs unnecessary villains in your face, which everyone, you know, is the whole reason they didn't go see Spider-Man 3 enough to warrant a sequel and didn't go see Spider-Man 2 enough to go warrant a sequel to that one. I have yeah. something to say on that. So, so Spider-Man three, it was uh, him fighting uh, three villains, and it was just it was a mess. This movie had five villains, but it wasn't about him fighting the villains. It was about him correcting his mistake. Yes, yes, and I, I think that's that's the big reason why it why it works so well. Yeah. Yes. So we all thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Oh yeah. Do yeah. you think if we were the age we are? and had not watched any of the other Spider-Man movies, if we would enjoy this one being a fan of the MCU. If you look at this movie just as a movie that's about this character Spider-Man, and you understand at all, and are geeky enough, as all of us would be, to care about the idea of a multiverse, the idea that you have an older, more professory Spider-Man, or, you know, like they call him, what do they call him, a youth camp uh, counselor? Yeah, mm-hmm. something um, like that. And then you have... The Spider-Man that was almost the MCU Spider-Man, lest we forget. It's the idea of the character. You disseminate the identity of the actor and make it a story that is about the character's inherent responsibilities and traits. And in that sense, I think this movie does actually work out of context of everything. I'm inclined to agree with that. I think it works out of context, but you won't get the same emotional gratification. Oh yeah, the stuff I don't like, I would not like way more. Yeah. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that also, because a lot of uh, the great feelings you get in this movie are the feelings that it's uh, wrapping up and putting a bow on Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Well, and Andrew Garfield. I'm not. I'm sorry, I would argue heavily against Tobey Maguire. So, no, they, no, no. That one needs a bow put on it, because and he they... basically ended Spider-Man 3 losing everything and with his future with yeah. MJ in question. Here's an interesting idea. Let's assume all these villains go back to their original timeline and they no longer die like they would have. Mm -hmm. They're creating more alternate universes because for that Tobey Maguire and that Andrew Garfield to be there, they they came from a place where they exist after they're already died. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. no, but uh, now with Norman Osborn being cured, uh, Harry. Osborn no longer has a vendetta against Spider-Man for killing his father, so we don't get another Green Goblin in his universe. In his universe, he's alive. But so, yeah, it's weird. You could go back to the, the multiverse that those characters were pulled from and you could tell different stories where yeah. you didn't do those things. But, again, that at its core goes back to what I was initially saying was my problem. Great, we've set up who Spider-Man is. Let's hope they deliver on it in the future. Oh, wait, Tom Holland might be done. Great, they've set up a potential to revisit Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire's universes and they've opened up possibilities there. Too bad we are never going to go back and revisit them. All right, go- going back a little bit to the question I asked you guys, what, whether you could what, would enjoy this movie uh, not having that history. And speaking of kids, I saw this with my son. He'll be 10 this week or next yeah. week or s- soon. Um, his review was it was very good, mm-hmm. and he has not seen the other Spider-Man movies. But also, this kid loves everything, so who's to say if that's an accurate representation or not? I mean, when I was 10 years old, I liked everything I watched. Fair enough. <laughs> So, Jerison's up for the gauntlet for a movie. Mm-hmm. 
I read the questions to the last guest, so Eric's going to read the questions this time. All right. Let's uh, first establish what the movie is. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990. So, remember, uh, you answer these questions completely objectively, as is the only right way to do things, or you hear... Uh, are you ready? No. Ninja Turtles, 1990. Is that a good movie or a bad movie? I honestly can't answer. Uh, I can. I do not know objectively if it is good or not. I love it. I can tell you that it is. A I love it. It's subjective. Yep, got him. I can tell you that it is a great adaptation. It takes the source material, which is uh, something like Ninja Turtles 1 through 4 and somewhere in the teens, uh, and it adapts it into a cohesive story while also taking elements from the animated show, which popularized the franchise and uh, gives it a bit of levity that wasn't in the original comic book, and it portrays the characters in very successfully from one medium to the other. Successfully is... You're, you're on a thread. You're on a thread. Give you half a boss. point for that one. What's your favorite scene in the movie? Oh, fuck, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> I love I love when Leonardo's meditating under the tree and the thing. Mm. Uh, and the Casey Jones scenes. So with, we get to talk about whatever no, the fuck like, we no, want to talk no, about like, while he's no, over here thinking. Oh yeah, no, like, uh, like, like, like uh, Casey Jones. probably jo real annoying to keep oh, talking. Like, 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 uh, like Casey Jones fixing the uh, truck with the uh, oh, Madoncello yeah. and, and going through through the uh, through the uh, alphabet game. Yeah. Oh yeah, that one's great. He does that with uh, one of the other turtles in the co comic. Um, the, the best scene in the movie is when Raphael is running from running after Casey Jones after he first meets him in Central Park and he gets hit by the taxi and rolls over the top of the hood and there's a dude sitting in the back of the cab and he says, what the hell was that? And the driver says, I don't know, some sort of big turtle in a trench coat. You're going to LaGuardia from here, right? And that is the best scene because it shows life in New York where this taxi driver is just unfazed by the weirdness that's going on in the city while this person who he's driving to the airport is like, what the fuck was that? I actually, I gotta, I, 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 I that's still subjective, but I, I gotta agree with you. I love moments like that. Yeah. Like, uh, for all of the horribleness in Ghostbusters 2016, Dan Aykroyd's cameo, he's like, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. I don't like, that. No, he drives up in a cab, no. and they're like, what are you doing? Like, aren't you, there's ghosts everywhere. He's like, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. What would you cut out of this movie? What would you remove? Oh, man. What would I cut out of this movie? This movie is very uh, tightly written. Everything uh, leads to something else, and there's not much to cut out. Great answer. That so, um, best actor and worst actor. The best actor is obviously Sam Rockwell. Yeah. That one's just because you're wrong. <laughs> no, Sam Rockwell is great at everything Actually, does. technically, if you were to say... In terms of success... No, he's just good. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, in terms of success and merit as an actor, pick out the actor in this movie that is quote-unquote the best. You could make a strong argument if you were to get into all the details of, like, what you qualifies know, as the best and stuff like that. Know, Sam Rockwell... I, I could, and that would be the subjective way to do that. And who's the worst actor? The worst, uh, the guy who plays April's boss. He, ha he brings nothing to that role. All right. Well, well, you already did give us your favorite quote, so oh, yeah, you've already been buzzed for that. Uh, so, skipping question five, six. What is the movie missing? What would you add to it if you could? I would add aliens if I could. Oh, 
was waiting on that. <laughs> okay. Um, in the source material where they adapted the story from, they take a tangent that would be like right in the middle of this movie where they get transported to a space station that's carved into an asteroid and they fight Triceratons, which are Triceratops aliens. I would put that in there just because that would give the movie the weird wackiness that is found in the comic book and it would make it gel more with what the rest of the franchise is. It's funny because you got a lot of people criticized this for the seriousness of its tone and then other people like glorified this one because of the seriousness of its tone. And it's interesting that you're talking about something that would bridge tones. Yeah. I think the the, the seriousness of the tone is uh, right on point for what it is. I mean, the the comics you have are intended for a mature audience. Mm. And they're in a way more serious, but at the same time, they're satire. Mm. So the levity in the movie kind of plays on that. So would you say that's an element of the story you enjoy? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Then you don't have a point for what did you enjoy from the story. Did you learn anything about making movies from watching this? Uh, That's a tough one to answer because I've been watching this movie for uh, 32 years. I've probably seen it more than any other movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of the things that I know about filmmaking subconsciously, I probably learned in part from this movie because I grew up with it. Yeah. So you got to have characters. Right. <laughs> you gotta have conflict. Yeah. Uh, you have to have setups and payoffs. So I think uh, rewatching it, what I would take away from it is from the writing where you do have these setups and payoffs and that kind of thing. I think I, there's something I think also to be said for bringing characters to life that are in puppet suits. Mm. Absolutely. Like, the, this that's something that's in a very few movies prior to us figuring out motion capture. Right. And uh, that goes a long way. Yeah. So, what would make you watch Ninja Turtles again? Just wanting to revisit a movie that I'm emotionally attached to. Last question. Would Nicolas Cage have made this movie better? No, absolutely not. Because Nicolas Cage... Nicolas Cage has a certain presence about him that when he is on screen, it's like, look... I'm Nicolas Cage, Mm. and he is the star of whatever scene he's in. Mm -hmm. This movie works so successfully without a name that he would detract from that. Okay. Yep, it would suddenly be about the named actor. It's funny, I was talking about the inverse of that with Mortal Kombat that came out this last year. Mm. A lot of people wanted Ryan Reynolds to be Johnny Cage. Uh, My point was, it's interesting, all the Mortal Kombat movies... Christopher Lambert is the biggest name actor that I can remember coming out like of the first ones. And it's kind of the thing bridging the gap between Mortal Kombat being this sort being this this uh cult franchise to being a big Hollywood franchise. And I feel like if you had that presence of like Nicolas Cage like you're talking about, it really does throw a wrench in the world you're looking at it's like you're either watching a movie starring Nicolas Cage or you're watching a movie yeah yeah I got I mean, all the points kind of I think you got like half of them I think you, you got you swung through a couple of them pretty yeah good. he did he did but yeah no this uh, what's your thing with Ninja Turtles um I mean growing up my favorite was always the second one Secret of, of the Use because that was the closest in tone and feel to the or to, to the uh, 1980s television show mm. you know uh 
growing up, I loved that one also, but watching it as an adult, it just falls flat on its face in the third act. They get to the point where they uh, try to get the retro mutagen into Toka and Razar with ice cubes and the donuts, and then they are thrown through the wall into the vanilla ice scene, yep. and then it just kind of... No, there's, see, I... There's like I, no but, third act. Well, well, to this day, I still I still like that because of how ridiculous the whole thing is, because the whole movie is not is not taking itself seriously. So oh, to no. throw them into a vanilla ice concert seems just like a natural progression at, at, at that point. And then for him to make up a Ninja Turtles rap song on, on the spot is... Just, you know what? I buy what you're selling. However, I think there. Yeah, but been... like when you're making up a rap and your rap is "Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go." <laughs> hey, it's the Green Machine. Gonna rock the town without being seen. Have you ever seen a turtle get down? There are more than that. There, there, there's wait, more lyrics than that. Wait, wait. You you cannot not deliver. Keep going. I, I don't know anymore. Damn it! <laughs> you're getting another buzz because of that. <laughs> yeah. No, but like. You guys can correct me if, if I'm wrong on this one, but, like, the first Ninja Turtles movie was, like, the first kind of, like, artsy sty- t- style of movie that I that, that I saw. Which is, I, I, I know that sounds weird, but, like, uh, the idea of, 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 of the Turtles, I'm, I'm having to go away, and you have a couple of scenes that are just dedicated to them dwelling over their, their loss of Splinter, and, 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 and specifically Leonardo having to meditate on what it means to be a leader. Something that I don't see in a whole lot of other Ninja Turtle movies. Uh, like, even with the Michael Bay one, the big hero is, is is Raphael playing a role that I'm not used to seeing him in, but I think that role fit, uh, suits him quite well. But again, mm-hmm. uh, going back to this original one, like, that's why I didn't... As a kid, I, 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 I didn't like it, because you had a lot of this... As a kid, I, I would call it a boring filler mm-hmm. that I didn't understand as a kid and why it was needed. And as as an adult, that's kind of like the emotional crux of the entire movie. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I think uh, as a kid, I, I ate it up because it was just it was Ninja Turtles, and you mm. know they were on it, so I loved it. Yeah. But I think it's because of that substance we're talking about why I continued to like it as a teenager and now as an adult. And that there has to be an, a degree of nostalgia uh, that keeps my love for it, but there is the substance there that uh, makes it still good. Whereas when I go back and watch the original cartoon that I was watching at, for the first time at the same time I first saw this movie, mm-hmm. that does not hold up, and it is unwatchable. So this has been an awesome trip. Thank you, Jarrison, uh, for listening for so long, for continuing to support us, and for you know always being a part of our situation and lives. Thank you. I was glad to be here. Can't wait till next time. Um. Yeah. Uh, where I think I think next time we'll talk about the movie that you directed and I helped write. We are This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, so remember to go check out the Debbie Delight, uh, the Music City Drive-In Podcast. So many different people who are brilliant in all of their own ways, and go check them out and support them, and thank you all so much. Uh, I'm Eric. You can find me... On Twitter at High Contrast FLM, on Letterboxd, on TikTok, on YouTube. I'm gradually waking up. Uh, I am Curtis. You can find me uh, on. You can follow me on Twitter at 90sGamer407. You can also follow me on Twitch at Merrick underscore Tainment, where I do video game streamings on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1130 p.m. to about 2 in the morning and every Friday I also do an anime watch party during the same time so if you like anime and you enjoy talking about anime come by and have some fun.
And I'm Jerison. You can find me on Instagram at the Jerison. That is T H E period J A R A S E N. You can find me working at Bizarro Wuxtry in downtown Athens, and you can also find what I have for sale at Very Human Comics on Instagram. Superhero movies are great. They're all right.